So there was a song released all the way back in 1971, and then it was covered again in 1990 by the band Tesla. So talking the rock band, not the car company. All right, it was called Signs, and it rose to the top of the charts. And some of you may recognize the chorus. Right, signs, signs everywhere, signs. You guys know this? Blocking out the scenery break in my mind. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read? Yeah, some of you got it. Can't you read the signs? Good. I was worried some of you might be like under a rock in 1990. Griffiths grew up in the jungle. He said he even knew that song. All right. At any rate, uh, I am sure now you're thinking I miss my calling as a musician. My kids are ready to sink into the pews and look for the exits. But needless to say, uh, in all seriousness, back to that refrain, can't you read the sign? That's an interesting question. Can you read the sign? Have you ever been unable to read a sign? Some of you will remember my wife and I took our 20th anniversary trip down to Argentina. And when we were there, the local airline decided to go on strike for about a week And it looked like we were going to miss our opportunity to hike the Fitzroy right down in Patagonia. And so we did what any couple would do in a foreign place. We looked around the airport. We found the only other people that spoke English. And we thought, hey, let's get together and let's drive down. And so that's what we did. We found someone out there in the parking lot who was willing to rent us their car for the one-way trip, about 20 hours, right? Us and these total strangers. And we embarked on that journey and I remember it was about, it was highway robbery, what we had to pay for that, for that one-way rental. But nonetheless, right, when you're desperate, you got to do what you got to do. And as we were pulling out, you know, the, the man says in broken English, he says something like, watch out for the potholes. It's like, okay, whatever, right? It's, it looks nice and paved here. Uh, and so off we go. And it was about 10 hours later in the middle of nowhere, right, where there are no signs of civilization, not a, a car inside, and the, the darkness without the moon just hung over us like a black shroud. And, and as we were driving down the road, I saw this sign off to the side, and it was on the shoulder, and it said, Zona de Bachas. Now, my high school Spanish didn't help me for that. All right, I didn't know exactly what that sign meant, but I assumed, right, it's orange, it must be some kind of a warning, but you know, it's not like there are any other warning signs, there are no cones, nothing significant like that, so I slowed down to about 50, <laughs> and it was just then that the road suddenly changed, and my wife blurted out something uh, in fear, and I slammed on the brakes, because before us was not a tiny pothole, but it was a sinkhole like something that could have swallowed up the entire car. Now, for the next 10 hours, you can imagine my eyes were peeled like a hawk for that sign, Zona de Bacchus. And if I saw that sign, I I slowed to a crawl. To call it a pothole zone is an understatement. Point being, we couldn't read the sign. And it nearly cost us the car. Could say it nearly cost us our lives. Truth is, all of our lives are filled with signs. The question is, are we reading them? Are we reading them? And friends, that really brings us back to our study in the Gospel of John this morning. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It's that 
famous passage where Jesus turns water into wine. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 2. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we provide them in the seat backs before you. You can find our passage on page 887. Now we've said this Gospel of John is really a, a book about belief. But not just belief in belief, but belief that Jesus is God's Son and our only Savior. And last week we saw that there were five who began to follow him, and the last of whom was Nathaniel. And if you remember, right at the close of chapter 1, Jesus says to Nathaniel, chapter 1, verse 50, Jesus says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He will see greater things than these. And actually that sets us up really well for chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 really marks the transition into the first main section of John. So chapter 2 through chapter 12 are often referred to as the book of signs. The book of signs. And we're going to come to the very first of those signs in our passage this morning. So follow along as I read John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Okay, so this is the passage that makes Presbyterians cheer and Baptists blush. Like a nice rosé. All right, no more wine and Baptist jokes, okay. Uh, now, at one level, John tells the story with real plain simplicity. Jesus and his disciples were there at a wedding. They run out of wine. Jesus performs a miracle, and the disciples believe. But notice John refers to this miracle not as a miracle in verse 11, but he refers to it as what? As the first of his signs. For miracles themselves could be understood merely as naked displays of power, maybe some neat parlor trick in order to impress the masses. But a sign, well, what does that do? It points to something else. It points to something greater. It points beyond itself to the deeper spiritual realities represented by the sign. Realities that are only grasped through the eyes of faith. The sign of turning water into wine exists 
to tell us something about Jesus. Namely, that Jesus is the bridegroom who purifies his bride for the wedding feast of heaven. So if you're looking for a summary sentence of John 2, 1 to 12, that's my best shot at it. Jesus is the bridegroom who purifies his bride for the wedding feast of heaven. Now, some of you may be scratching your heads a little bit like that's not a sentence I would have come up with this week. Uh, But hang with me, stay with me, let's look into that sign together and let's see what it has to say about Jesus. And so for you anxious note takers, three simple points I think this sign teaches us about Jesus. We must first come to him properly. So first, come to him properly. Second, understand him rightly. And third, believe in him truly. So first, come to him properly. Second, understand him rightly. Third, believe in him fully. All right, we'll repeat those as we go along. But first, again, the sign teaches us we must come to him as in Jesus, come to him properly. We must come to him properly. Now, the scene opens festively. There is a wedding, right, full of singing and laughter and feasting. Weddings were significant social events in, in the ancient Near East. They often took place over a full seven days. And the bridegroom, right, we just usually refer to the groom, but, but the bridegroom uh, and his family were responsible for the festivities. In other words, the groom's family covered all the expenses. And let me just say, as a dad to three girls... I think that's a cultural practice we ought to reinstitute. Right? It's in the Bible. Just saying, at any rate. Uh, notice who was there. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus was also invited with the disciples. Right? So, so much for notions of Jesus as some kind of antisocial hermit. Now, it may be that the wedding was for a relative or perhaps a close friend, which may explain why Mary feels some burden to solve the presenting problem, which is they've run out of wine, which is, to put it mildly, a catastrophe, right? This is a serious social faux pas, This would have brought great dishonor upon the groom's family because wine was central to weddings. It would be like if if we were to, to throw a huge Super Bowl for our own community, right, in our own neighborhood, And everyone from our neighborhood showed up at our house. And there was lots of excitement. There was all this talk about Travis and Taylor, right? Is she going to make it in from Japan or what's going to happen? All that stuff. The folks are noting, right, the wonderful hors d'oeuvres of the party, right? The wheelers are such swell people, right? Aaron and I are all excited. And then I go to turn on the TV and there's no signal. Cable's been cut. I forgot to pay the bill. So just imagine that moment, and that really doesn't even begin to capture what it would have been like here in John chapter 2, right? Folks would be walking out of our house, what a joke, the wheelers are total losers, right? It would be embarrassing. Weddings weren't just social contracts between a couple. They were actually contracts between families, even in the community. And wine itself was a symbol 
of God's blessing upon his people. So we read about that earlier in Amos 9. Or think of Isaiah, perhaps chapter 25, where God promises to bless his people with a feast of what? Of well-aged wine. So to run out of wine, again, at a wedding of all places, right? That is hugely dishonoring. Which is why Mary informs Jesus, right? She says to him, verse 3, they have no wine. Now, given Jesus' response to Mary, it's clear that she wants him to do something. She's not just stating the obvious. She tells him because she hopes he might do something. Now, what we're not told, it's not like Jesus was traveling around with some award-winning wine cellar, right, in the back. It's not as if we're told Jesus was a wine wholesaler. He's like, oh, yeah, let me go make a a late-night run and we can sort this out. No, Mary, likely a widow at this point, no doubt leaned on her eldest son. She knew Jesus to be resourceful. So she turned to the only person she thought could help. And yet Jesus' response to his mother, it throws us, doesn't it? Verse 4, what does Jesus say? Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, listen, if I were to bark at my mom, woman, like, come here and get me a beer or something, I hope someone would slap me upside the head, right? Because the way we often use that word, it's, well, it's patronizing, it's condescending, it's even demeaning. Is this Jesus disrespecting his mama? That's a question we have to ask. But the answer to that is no. There is actually no offense, there's no disrespect intended by that word mother in Greek. There's no disrespect, or or I should say woman. There's no disrespect intended by the word uh, woman in Greek. It's actually a respectful term, though it's not overly personal, nor is it overly sentimental. And so in English, we have a hard time knowing exactly how to translate it. The old NIV would translate it, dear woman. Uh, You might think of the word lady in English, if people use that word anymore, or like madame in French, maybe something like that. In fact, the only other time we actually come across Mary in John's gospel, it's at the cross, where Jesus is grimacing grimacing in pain, and we read in John 19, 26, that when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, so likely the author here, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, And notice how he addresses her. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So clearly there on the cross, when Jesus addresses her as woman, he is not disrespecting her. He is caring for her. He is providing for her as he leaves this earth. And yet at the same time, there's not a single Greek or Jewish example in all of literature where a son refers to his mother like this, just as woman. So it's a term that while polite, it does create some distance between the two. Jesus seems to be drawing attention away from their own blood relationship. What's the point? The point I think we're seeing is that Mary is having to learn what it means to come to Jesus properly. 
She's having to learn what it means to come to Jesus properly, which means she's not to appeal to him as son, but she has to begin appealing to him as Savior, as Savior. Mary has to learn to approach Jesus just like everybody else. So with Jesus embarking now on his public ministry, their relationship is going to begin to change. My friend, it does not matter who you are. Dan Paul reminded us, didn't he, last Sunday night, there's only one way that we can come to Jesus. We come to him only this way, as a sinner in great need of a Savior. And that's it. That's how all of us have to come to Jesus. None of us, not even Mary here, can presume to have a kind of inside track with Jesus. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how religious they were. It doesn't matter all the things that you have done in this life. We all approach Jesus the same way. We all approach him as sinners in need of a Savior. So Jesus' response in verse 4 is actually a gentle rebuke. So what does this have to do with me? Or as the NIV says, why do you involve me? Jesus is effectively saying, hey, this isn't my problem because my hour has not yet come. Now throughout the Gospel of John, John, that term hour is going to refer to the purpose for which the Son of God took on flesh Right? His crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation. And Jesus is saying to Mary, it's not the time. It's not the time for all of that to be revealed. Right? It's too early. And yet, consider Mary's faith. So even after that gentle rebuke from her son, she is bold enough to look at the servants in verse 5, and she says to them, do whatever he tells you. That's what she says to the servants. She's like the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 who keeps begging Jesus for mercy, right? The disciples, if you remember, they get annoyed by her. They're trying to, they're trying to send her away to run her off. And yet Jesus, as she persists, what does he do? He rewards her because of her great faith. And so Mary persists. She won't be deterred. And what a model of prayer and persistence Mary is here. She doesn't know how Jesus is going to fix this problem. Notice what she says. Do whatever he says. She doesn't know. Whatever he says, just do it. She doesn't know how, but she knows who Jesus is. And she knows there's nothing that's impossible for him. She knows that he alone can find out some way to fix this problem. Because there is no problem too great for Jesus. My Christian friend, I wonder if you approach God the way Mary has approached Jesus, right? Even if you're tripped up, even if you receive a mild rebuke, so to speak, from Jesus, do you still come back to him? Do you pray to him? Do you plead with him knowing that there is no problem too great for Jesus? That's exactly how we're to approach him. Friends, it's that approach that most honors him. Mary approached Jesus as his mother, and she was reproached. She responds as a believer, and she's honored. My friends, don't be deterred. Continue to wrestle with God. Plead with him. Don't give up. Bring in your prayers and your requests to him. 
Jesus never tires of those prayers. He never ignores them. He delights in them. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see Jesus respond to Mary's request. Which brings us to the second thing this sign teaches us about Jesus. We're not just to come to him properly, but we are to secondly, we're to understand him rightly. We're to understand him rightly. And what must we understand about him? Well, three things. So if you are a note taker, three subpoints to point two, just heads up. First thing we're to see, if we're to understand Jesus rightly, is that he's the creator. He is the creator. So notice in verse one, all this is happening when? On the third day. Now, again, that doesn't mean day three, because as we saw last week, day one was John the Baptist and his running with the leaders. That's 1, 19 to 28. And they, day two was John bearing witness to Jesus. That was chapter 1, 29 to 34. And then day three was John calling, or rather Jesus calling uh, the two disciples. Uh, and then Peter, that was 135 to 42. And then day four was Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel. That was 143 to 51. And so if we're three days after that, and given the fact that Hebrews often counted inclusively, a whole different conversation, it would mean we're now likely at day six. We're now likely at day six. And for a writer as careful as John, that's not an accident. So for John to set out a full week of activity, culminating on day six with this miracle of water turning into wine, again, no coincidence. It's meant to remind us of Genesis 1. These six days here in John 1 to 2 are meant to parallel the six days of creation back in Genesis 1. Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. We read about that, John 1, 3. And by whom this new creation of water into wine now takes place. Even John's choice of words, look, look down with me to verse 9. We read in verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. That word become, it's actually all over John chapter 1. It's the word that's also translated made. As in John 1, 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Same word. Again, we're seeing Jesus being presented as the divine creator. Only he, as creator, therefore, can transform water into wine. And notice he doesn't dance around it. Right? He's not waving his arms like some crazy man. There's no elaborate religious ritual. There's no hocus-pocus kind of stuff that goes on in the miracle. He merely speaks to the servants. They obey him, and water turns into wine. Just as at the first creation, what happens? Jesus speaks, and the universe explodes into existence. It's the same here. Jesus speaks and now he creates wine where there was none. He is the creator. And friend, if Jesus is the author of all life, it means Jesus has, therefore, all authority over our own lives. Our lives don't finally belong to us. Our bodies don't finally belong to us. They actually belong to him. And one day, we're going to have to give an account to him. He is the creator. But not just that, he's also, secondly, our savior. That's the second thing we have to understand about him. He's our savior. Now, there's a kind of deceptive simplicity to how John recounts the story. So just as the water 
turning into wine is a sign that tells us something about Jesus. So I think some of the events that happen are fitting signs about first century Judaism. I think some of the events here are also fitting signs about first century Judaism. What do I mean? Well, lots of things can go wrong in a wedding, right? The groom or the bride, maybe one of them gets sick. Or the best man, sadly, is hungover. Or the photographer is late. Or the DJ takes the down payment and then runs out of town, leaves you high and dry. Sadly, I've even seen that. But none of that's the issue here, is it? Instead, the issue is they have no wine. And again, I don't think that's an accident. There's no accidents when it comes to a sovereign God. Given the way wine was a sign of God's joy and blessing in the Old Testament, the lack of that wine, well, you see right there, that's a fitting spiritual picture that symbolizes the kind of spiritual barrenness. It symbolizes the kind of spiritual dryness that existed in first century Judaism. Right? It promised, but it couldn't deliver. It ran out of wine. Even that detail in verse 6, right? look, down to, look down there. Mary has just told the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. And then John breaks from the story, verse 6, to let us know that there were there six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, John is referencing there the tradition that the Jewish elders uh, instituted that required certain utensils and guest hands. All of them needed to be washed in order to be clean. So if you know Mark 7, right, that's what Jesus is referencing there, same tradition. But why does John highlight that detail? I mean, why explain how many water jars were there? Why explain their purpose? I mean, who really cares at the end of the day about the jars? No one really cares about the bottles, so to speak, right? It's what's in it that matters. But again, I don't think that's an accident. It's to show how all of the rituals established under the old covenant are giving way to something new, something that is much greater. So the shadow of the law is being now replaced by the substance. External washing, the washing of hands, is now giving, giving way to internal cleansing. So those repeated washings that could not wash away sins are being replaced by Jesus, right? The once and for all sacrifice who is able to completely save those who come to him. Hebrews 7 and 10. Right, in the words of Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old is gone and the new has come. I think that's what we're seeing. And we're being reminded again that true religion, genuine religion before God, is never finally about externals. Never finally about externals. It's not finally about food and drink. It's not about the proper length of a skirt. It's not finally about the color of our hair, whether or not it's purple or green, or the music we listen to, or whether or not we homeschool or public school, or whether or not we even show up for church. Those things are important. Don't get me wrong, they're not unimportant. But those things are not what finally make us right before God. Jesus alone does that. And that's the point that John is trying to make. Only Jesus can replace the water of Judaism with the new wine of Christianity. He alone has the power to cleanse us, to renew us, 
and to restore us to God. Because he's not just our creator, he is also our savior. Second thing we have to understand about Jesus, he is our savior. Third thing we have to understand, he is the master of the feast. He is the master of the feast. Now, very little is said of the miracle itself, which is surprising because if I was going to tell this story, I'd camp on that miraculous moment, right? When the servant and when they dip those wine glasses into those jars and they draw it out and it's no longer wine, but it's the finest like Napa Valley Cab or some French Bordeaux like anyone's ever seen. I'd highlight that point. I'd talk about it, how it tasted and smelled and how it swished in your mouth, all that stuff. I think most of us would do something like that. But John doesn't do that because the miracle itself isn't the point. It's a sign that points us to something about Jesus. And so notice in the story that we never actually hear the groom speak. We never actually are told a thing about the bride. So the two most important people at a wedding get no airtime. Even the master of the feast, and think of that guy as sort of the head caterer, if you will. Even that individual, he takes a back seat to the one person who owns the story from verse 1 to verse 12. And that one person is Jesus. He's the one who owns the story. Even Jesus' mother, notice this in John, she's never referred to as Mary. Never once is she referred to as Mary. She is always referred to as the mother of Jesus. As if just to drive home the truth that everything finds its meaning and significance in relation to him. Everything finds its meaning and significance only in relation to him. Mother of Jesus. The story has entirely reversed the characters. John's helping us see that Jesus is the one who is, in fact, the master of the banquet. He is the one here who is ruling over the whole ceremony. And he's the bridegroom. He is the one who will wed his people to himself. He is the one who through, as we keep reading in John, through his death and burial and resurrection, he is going to purify his people and he's going to present them as a spotless bride at the great wedding feast of heaven. That's what the sign is teaching us about Jesus. And at that great wedding feast, notice there will be an abundance of wine, fine wine, well-aged wine, an abundance, John says, of blessing. And John specifically highlights that. So he tells us what each jar, those stone jars, contain you know, upwards of 30 gallons so you do the math, 30 gallons, each jar and six jars. Friends, that's 900 bottles of wine. That's a massive amount of wine. But it speaks to the abundance of the new heavens and the new earth. It speaks to the kind of party, responsible, I trust, yes. But a great party with great feasting in the new heavens and new earth. And notice the quality of the wine, not just the abundance, the quality of it. I mean, this is vintage Jesus in every sense of the word. For when the master of the feast tasted the wine, his mouth erupted into applause. Right? He calls the groom over. He's so taken back, right? He calls the groom over, pats him on the back, and he basically says, boy, don't you know how this game is played? This isn't how you do it. You always start with the fine wine, 
when their palates are still sharp and their minds are still sharp. And you serve the fine wine first, and then once they've had, the ESV says drunk freely. The word literally just means drunk. I.e., once they've had too much to drink and they're a bit blitzed, then you bring out all the poor stuff. We would say you bring out the cheap stuff. Like, that's how people play the game. But the master of the feast recognizes that's not at all what Jesus has done. Well, he doesn't actually realize it's Jesus, but we know that's not how it's done. He's actually saved the best for last. Right? It, it, at this wedding feast, it goes from, like, great to out-of-this-world kind of quality. Friends, at the great wedding feast of the Lamb, we read about in Revelations 19, Jesus will be the sommelier. What an amazing thought. Can you imagine Jesus providing not just abundance, but the best for his people? There's no two-buck chuck, right? No barefoot, no boxed wine in heaven. None of that stuff is going to go. You know, it said the finest bottle of wine, these are the fun things I do when I get bored, uh, doing textual work, I look stuff up. The finest bottle of wine is a 1945 Chateau Mouton Rothschild out of France. I'm sure I butchered that, but a wine out of France. Sells for close to $50,000 per bottle. Finest wine around. And yet in the new heavens and new earth, with Jesus as the sommelier at the head of the table, friends, we'd be spitting that stuff out. It would be nothing in comparison to what he has prepared for us. That's how good. That's the abundance and the quality that we will experience with God and the new heavens and new earth. Oh, my Christian friend, right, member of UBC, on that day there will be joy and there will be feasting unlike anything the world has ever seen. And that's your future. If you are in Christ, you already have a reservation at the table, right? The menu is set and Jesus stands at the head of the table and he's waiting to receive you. I mean, does it get any better than that? I mean, what Super Bowl party honestly compares with that? Certainly none of ours, I assure you. So we're to come to him properly we must understand him rightly, creator, savior, master of the feast. And now third, we're to believe in him fully. Believe in him fully. So verse 11 gives us really the interpretation, the kind of so what of it all. And we read in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So Jesus performed this sign not because he was one of those pretentious wedding guests, right, who would only drink the best. It's not why he did it. It's not because he was bored and just wanted to have a little bit of fun. It's not for the wow factor. It was not to sort of increase his popularity and standing among the people. He didn't do it for any of those reasons. He did it so those around him might see what he had done and believe. Believe in him. Believe in what this sign says about him. So we've said the Gospel of John is a book about belief. And we're seeing it again right here. Remember the theme verse of the entire Gospel. John chapter 20 beginning in verse 30. We read, now Jesus did many other, and notice the word he uses, signs. Now Jesus did many other signs 
and the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, right, there's our purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So listen, if you've come and you're not a Christian, uh, you don't identify with Christ in any way, like we are so grateful you're here. We hope you've been encouraged. Uh, we hope you're learning something about what it would mean to be a follower of Jesus. And so I just wonder, what do you do with this story of Jesus? I mean, you can say it was all a ruse, right? You can seek to dismiss it. Maybe Jesus really was a closet wine wholesaler. I don't know. Maybe he really did have a huge wine cellar, and he could just go back and pull it out. Or maybe, you know, he actually didn't transform anything from water to wine. Maybe the master of the feast was all just speaking kind of tongue-in-cheek, it was really just 180 gallons of water that Jesus had them pour in there. And, and then everyone just went along with it as if pretending it was wine. I mean, I guess you might think one of those things, but that stretches the imagination a bit, doesn't it? But just because all saw the sign, the disciples saw it, the servants saw it, right? Too many eyewitnesses that could vouch for this story, but just because they saw it, doesn't mean they truly read it, doesn't mean they truly understood it. Notice it says his disciples believed. His disciples believed. And they're the ones, verse 12, they're going to go on with Jesus and his mother and his biological siblings, and they're going to, they're going to leave for Capernaum. They're the ones who see what's happened, and they kind of go with Jesus. They shadow him. They follow him. But they weren't the only ones who saw the miracle. Notice, the, the servants, they saw it as well. But we don't read any of the servants follow Jesus. They saw the sign, no doubt in awe of the sign. I presume they told other people about the sign, but they didn't finally grasp what it said about Jesus. And they simply went on with their lives. How about you? If you've come... Right? You're a foreigner to Christianity. How about you? Will you see this sign for what it truly says about Jesus? Will you see it and will you believe? Will you embrace this Jesus, the one who in his final sign of the book would be crucified, buried, raised, and then glorified? The one who now stands at the head of that heavenly table ready to receive you with an abundance of blessing represented in that fine wine. He was ready to receive you if you would repent of your sins and believe in him. That's what it means to believe. It means to walk away from how you want to live your life and live it as Jesus would call you to live it. He is your creator. He owns it anyway. And it is such a blessing to walk with this Jesus. Would you do that? Would you believe in him? Or like the servants, will you see, be amazed perhaps, and then just get on with life? Christian, as we come to a close, notice where Jesus chooses to manifest his glory. Verse 11. He chose to reveal himself first to the world at a wedding. Not at a funeral. Not at a business meeting. Not some Walmart shareholders meeting. Not some halftime show at the Super Bowl. 
he chose to reveal himself first to the world at a wedding. And again, that's not an accident. Why would Jesus do that? Because marriage is the institution that Jesus uniquely intended to display the gospel. He created it for that very purpose. So that his love for his bride, the church, might be displayed in human marriage. It's why the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Now, when I do a wedding, one of the things I often do is I often quote from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. I find it beautiful. Some of you find it a little formal. That's okay. We can have our differences. But there is a section I don't read, but it reads like this. It reads that holy matrimony, right, marriage, is an honorable estate, instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee. You see, it's why if we're married, we must see our marriages not merely as a social contract between two spouses, but between ourselves and God. It's why we must view them not merely as vehicles meant to deliver our own notions of personal fulfillment. It's why we must see them not simply as an institution for raising up children. Rather, we must understand what they first are. Marriage is a pedestal. It's a platform. Marriage is a pulpit that preaches Christ. That's what it's there for. The one who adorned this marriage in Cana, and the one to whom all subsequent marriages are meant to point, to Christ and his love for his bride, the church. It's why God cares so much about our own marriages, their purity, their quality, their fidelity, their consistency, their longevity, because they don't point finally to us, they point to him. So if you are married, That marriage is itself a sign that points to something greater, namely the reality of Christ's love for his bride, the church. So I want to ask you, how clear is that sign? How clear is that sign in your marriage? Is that sign even pointing in the right direction? You know, that night in Argentina, sort of barreling down into that deep darkness, that thick darkness, I couldn't quite make out that sign, right? Zona de Bacchus. I couldn't read it. I didn't really understand it. And the fact that I almost missed it entirely, right, that nearly cost us our lives. Friends, as the song goes, right, signs, signs, everywhere signs. All about us. Some of them are pretty insignificant, but some of them are the difference between life and death. Like this one where Jesus turns water into wine. The question is, can you read the sign? Can you read the sign for what it has to say about Jesus and how you need to respond to him? Let's pray.